Warning, the following program features content that may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised. You're listening to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Greetings, everybody, and welcome to episode nine of the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Back in the basement for another week of shenanigans across the World Wide Web. Good to have you here. Great to be back. You can just call me uh, Puff today because I am certainly Dragon. A lot of activity jammed into the uh, the weekend ever since uh, Friday rolled around. Friday on the road to St. Louis. Uh, Friday night, the uh, the wedding of my friends Brooke and Adam. I'll take a minute to say congratulations to the newly minted Mr. and Mrs. Sieb. It's a busy day for us. Uh, hit the road around 10 o'clock, I think, in the morning. Got, uh, got to St. Louis around noon. Delivered flowers to the uh, resort place, the uh, the golf course where the wedding took place. Tapawingo. Tapawingo Golf Resort or something like that. I, I know that Tapawingo was the name, which is fun to say over and over again. Tapawingo. Tapa what? Tapawingo. So anyway, yeah, we took a nice little uh, nice little road trip, listened to some podcasts on the way there. And um, so you, you, the first thing on the agenda after we dropped the flowers off at the venue was to pick up young Nolan, the young squire of Brooke and Adam. We had to pick him up from daycare. And this was something that I, w- I was kind of dreading all week because looking at myself in the mirror i i would think that if a stranger like if i were to come to a daycare and ask to pick up a child i would question myself based upon looks alone you have a six foot three man bald full beard hefty build i would say heavy set probably and a guy that wears a carhartt coat aviator sunglasses things like that so yeah if i showed up to a daycare and asked to pick up somebody's child i i would certainly questioned myself. So I wanted to make sure well in advance that, you know, this was taken care of by Adam and Brooke, that the that the, uh, the people at the daycare knew that Emily and I would be picking up, you know, their child so that they wouldn't be caught off guard by some big burly bald dude showing up to say, hey, can I come get this kid? Can I pick him up? I'm going to take him. That's cool. I'll talk to his parents. So anyway, that all that all worked out well. And uh, we, we finally figured out Nolan's car seat and we got ourselves on the way to uh, Tapawingo. And Nolan, I believe, is five. I want to say he's five. He's five or six. Still young enough to not really have a full concept of, you know, how the world works. He's not jaded yet, in other words. He still has that air of innocence. All of that air of innocence. So on the way to Tapawingo, we're talking with Nolan, and, and he is asking about marriage. And from the perspective of a child that young, you, you start to question the way you understand things, or at least certain things, to an extent. And Nolan said that he wanted to get married with Adam, not to Adam, but with Adam. He did say, though, that he wanted to marry his mom. And Emily had to explain to him that, that that's not the way that works. That can't be done. But Emily kind of gave him the uh, the birds and the bees talk of of marriage. You know, she said when when somebody finds somebody that they really love, they they get married and they stay together for the rest of their lives. And Nolan goes, so Adam loves my mommy and they're going to get married I wish that I had that that innocence still, that I wasn't jaded, like I said, in the way that I look at things as an adult now. So to, that innocence of being a child would be, can you imagine that returning to you? I don't know if it'd be a, a good thing or a bad thing. You know, if you had the innocence of a five-year-old and you're my age, you're, you're 28, to have that that understanding or that grasp or lack thereof of a, a five-year-old kid and a 20-year-old body might be scary, but it might make the world a better place. I don't know. 
But that got me to thinking, you know, when I was a kid, what I thought marriage was. And I guess I never really put much stock into it. But I guess I always thought, you know, you got married and then like the next day you got your wife pregnant. Like I, I thought that was like the order of the process. Like you get you get married, you do the ceremony thing, you do the big party. And then the next day you announce that you're going to have a baby, which in some cases, maybe that works. But my my thought process was more you get married and then your wife is immediately pregnant the next day and then you, you start your family. That's how I always thought it worked. Not always the case. But I think I'm going to try to go back into that mentality, that mindset that, that you get married and then the next day your wife is pregnant immediately, like immaculate conception almost. I think that's the way I'm going to look at the world from here on out. So anyway, before all the wedding took place, uh, we checked into our, our hotel, the Drury Inn, which is like the third Drury Inn I've stayed in in the past 12 months, I think. I'm usually a Hampton Inn guy, but Drury's quickly making a run for their money. So we get checked into the hotel, and we're kind of hungry, and we decide, well, you know, we want to eat, but we don't want to overdo it. And luckily, there's a Bob Evans next door, and I was like, let's just walk right next door. We'll get some appetizers, and we'll call it good. By the way, Bob Evans sells one hell of a good-looking red and white mesh ball cap. Ten bucks, and, and I'm still kicking myself over not buying this thing right then and there. So I may be checking their, uh, their online store at the conclusion of the show. So the great thing about these mom-and-pop-style restaurant-diner things are the people that work there, usually. Usually. There's a waitress there named Phyllis, and if you follow me on Twitter, you can read my dissertation about why all women that work at Bob Evans or a similar establishment should be named Phyllis. Because the name Phyllis, and the embodiment of who I envision Phyllis to be, is the archetype of the diner waitress, the flow, if you will. You know, we're talking hair that's at least 15 to 20 years outdated. The oversized shirt with the uh, the little apron thing around it. You know, she's got her nails did, sort of. Carrying around that little tablet with her pen. And she's stuffed in her, her hairband thing. That's Phyllis. A bit homely looking, but approachable. And very warm and welcoming looking. That's Phyllis. That's who every Phyllis in every diner should be. And every diner needs a Phyllis. Or it's not going to be successful. But she's got to do one other thing. Like when she's taking your order, she's got to call you hun. Or sweetie. Not like the girl at the Hardee's drive-thru that always does when I order there. That's weird. That's the fine line between fast food and sit-down dining. Don't call me hun at the drive-thru. Because I can't see your face. And then I don't know if I'm going to be okay with it, you know. You can call me hun and end up looking like the bus driver lady from South Park. And I'm not going to be okay with it. But if you look like Phyllis, you know, that warm, lighthearted, caring probably someone's grandmother, then yeah, then yeah, it's fine. Call me hon. Totally. I'm on board with it. It's all about visuals. But it's like I said, Phyllis has got to like toe the line between sweet and a little bit sassy and a little bit like, you know, don't screw with me. So, you know, like when you go to pay, she's like, now y'all gonna, y'all gonna, y'all on one ticket or y'all gonna split the ticket like I did my ex-husband's lap. That's Phyllis. Just enough of a hard ass to make you a little bit worried that if you don't leave a tip, Phyllis is going to find out where you live and put the smack down on you. So anyway, that's enough about Phyllis. Like I said, back to the wedding later that night. The Seebs did it right. Toasted Rav appetizers. An entire table devoted to things like chocolate chip cookies and what I called apple pie cookies. I don't know if that's technically what they were. They were like little apple slices, like little pie fillings on like a little tiny pie crust or cookie. So it's like a cookie pie, I guess. I don't know. It's freaking phenomenal, though. And ladies and gentlemen, let me tell you about the beef tendy. 
the beef tenderloin. Tender beef cuts, brown gravy, served with some mushrooms for added effect. Mmm, damn, meal and a half. And then we went from meal and a half to fourth meal because they had pizza on a buffet later on in the night. Wasn't sure if I was at a wedding or a food convention, but it was like the best of both worlds. A marriage, if you will. A marriage of things inside of a marriage of people. They did it right. Like I said, the wedding was great. Uh, and I, I was very glad to have a part in it. Brooke and Adam asked me to play for the wedding. For those of you who know me, you know that I have a pretty strict no wedding policy. But I have made the occasional exception for very close friends and people that I care about. But, you know, these people do a lot of stuff for you. So the least you can do is play some music for them. So what I did for Brooke and Adam's wedding was recorded the music instead of sitting up there. I, I, the thing about weddings, why I don't like doing weddings is because you're a sitting duck. You're sitting there in a room full of people that are, for the most part, probably watching you like a hog because there's nothing else going on when you're playing. Okay, so not only that, but then you have the pressure of that this is a, this is a one-and-done deal. You have no room for error in this atmosphere, in this scenario, because if you screw up, you don't get a mulligan. It's a wedding. You have no do-overs as a musician contributing to this ceremony. you got to be on your game. you got to bring it, and you got to not screw up so bad that you make an ass out of yourself. And I know enough, you know, I know enough about playing and singing guitar that I, I could hold my own, but I don't, there, there's such little room for me for error in playing a wedding that I don't want to put that on myself. And a lot of the time I don't have time to sit down and kind of, kind of learn these songs that some people will give you like a list of 20 songs. I'm like, uh, okay, I'll try to learn these as best as I can. So essentially kind of what it's come down to is, is anymore I offer to do the recording thing. As opposed to, you know, bringing my equipment, setting it up and playing for 10 minutes and then being done, you know, so it makes more sense to do it that way. But normally a very no wedding strict policy with some footnotes, some exceptions. But anyway, I, I was glad to have, you know, recorded some music for the wedding that uh, they, they seemed to be very pleased with. And it was, was kind of cool to listen to myself play music while I was eating dinner. Kind of bizarre, too. Anyway, I did some more playing last night, and oh my goodness, was it ridiculous. Stupid Saturday night in Quincy. Stupid. Uh, my band Blacktop South, we returned to the dock in Quincy last night. The dock is kind of like our home base. It's down on the Mississippi Riverfront. You know, they got this big new addition that they put up last year, and it's, you know, like if you go to the restaurants or the bars that have the big um, glass garage doors that's kind of what it is and there's a stage inside there big concrete floor there's you know tables bar stools that kind of thing so everybody was worried earlier this week they were like oh my gosh it's it's gonna snow it's gonna be 10 degrees and no one's gonna show up exact opposite so thankfully most of the snowing happened in the morning and not a lot of it if any of it stuck and i don't know if people have been cooped up all winter and they needed an excuse to you know get out of the house and enjoy themselves or if we've developed that much of a following in the area but people came out in droves, droves, butt to nut, all night. It was insane. And when I, when I say insane, it was, it was crazy enough that, and busy enough that people had pitchers. They were drinking pitchers. Not getting a pitcher and pouring it into a glass. They had the pitchers up towards the front of the stage, which is drinking out of them. And I would imagine a large part of the reason for that was because nobody wanted to wade through the sea of people that were crammed into this place to get back to the bar. It wasn't the fact that you couldn't get a beer. It was more of a convenience fact of, I don't want to wade through all these people to go back and get a refill. So they're, they're coming up with pitchers 
and drinking out of them in the crowd. And I was told, I, I think there was an estimated 600 people there. And like I said, it's not, I'm not sure if it's because people have been, you know, stowed away all winter and they really wanted to come out and get turned, but man, not complaining either way, but it was nuts. One of the most responsive crowds that I've ever played for and probably one of the drunkest crowds. And we're going to talk about fine lines with playing. There's always a fine line when it comes to playing and people getting on stage. There's a difference in being invited to come on stage and taking it upon yourself to walk up on the stage without being invited. That's kind of like walking into someone's house that you don't know, or you do know for that matter, and you're just inviting yourself in. So there, obviously, with you know people drinking out of pitchers of beer, that, uh, that, that happened. It came to the point of the night where that took place. And one was a couple of college-age dudes who, who ended up pretty much performing a semi-striptease during one of the songs. I think it was an Alabama song. So that's an interesting choice of song to take your shirt off to, gentlemen. But uh, hats off to you. So then it comes to the night. And I, I sing uh, probably about five or six songs all together throughout this four-hour set, which is fine because a lot of people are like, why don't you sing more? And I like, well, I wanted to be in this band so I could lay back and play guitar more. That's something I've always wanted to do. So anyway, we get to one of the points where I'm singing one of the songs. And this lady who is, um, how do I describe this lady? She's in her, she's either in her late nicotine forties or a healthy 60. I'm not entirely sure, but this woman is wearing what looks like the old, uh, you know, the old bench seat, seat cover things that, that look like, a, one of those Spanish poncho things. She's like wearing that for a sweatshirt and some old ratty jeans. And she's got on Ducks Unlimited socks over her jeans up to her kneecaps. And she's got the whole feathered hair thing going on and kind of an exoskeleton facial appearance. Kind of like a bad Maria Shriver. I know, let that sink in for a minute. So anyway, I've got I've got kind of a just a little bit of wiggle room on the stage where I stand typically to my right anyway, because to my right is where all the speakers are stacked up because I'm on the far right of the stage. She at some point decides to wrangle her way up on the stage and try to get on the microphone with me and, and sing. So I've got her wedged between myself and all the speakers. And it's kind of terrifying. Because she's looking at me with her meth teeth, and I'm, I'm more concerned not only about the amount of room that I have to work with, but that she's going to kick over my PBR tall boy. So we eventually get to the solo of the song, and I, I have to just uh, kind of, uh, I didn't push her, I didn't push her off the stage, but I, um, I uh, maneuvered her in a direction that allowed her to exit the stage safely and get out of my hair. But she was totally weird. Totally weird. And, and we have what are called in-ear monitors, which is, to me, kind of self-explanatory. But if you don't know what they are, they're, they're like custom-molded earphones. So you, A, cancel out the noise that's going on in the room, and B, you can better hear what you're doing. So we've got these things in, and she's trying to talk to me the whole time, and I keep pointing to my ears like, I can't hear you, and I can't read lips because my vision is not as good as it once was. But I think after I kind of uh, nudged her in the direction of off the stage and her equally terrifying friend helped her off. I think she kind of understood that lady, I want no part of you being up here with me or staring at me and giving me whatever kind of disgusting bloodshot eye you're giving me. Bizarre. 
bizarre. And yeah, I mean, I would tell you, I would tell you not to get up on stage, but usually alcohol plays a big factor in whether you're brave enough to get up on the stage or not without being invited. So that was interesting, but it was so crowded. I want to go back to, to how crowded it was during the second set break, which happened probably around 11 o'clock or 1130. It was so packed that I was like, I'm not going to be able to get off this stage and go take a pee. And when you're up there playing, you know, hour long sets or hour and a half long sets and you're drinking some beers, it's going to come to the point where you have to pee during every break that you can possibly pee. So set two was very difficult. Finally, I managed to finagle my way out, you know, off the stage and outside because I wanted to pee outside. I didn't want to wait, you know, in line inside for the bathroom. And as a man, peeing outside is kind of liberating. It's kind of freeing, you know, checking the weather, as I like to call it. Well, apparently everybody else had that same idea, that they were going to cut out the side and go pee out back, which is normally okay because it's usually the band that goes out and pees out back. So you know who you're peeing with, I guess. Well, not last night on the craziest of nights. Our sound guy is, uh, his name is Rolo Carter. His, His real name's not Rolo, but everybody knows him as Rolo. So I'm out standing by Rolo's truck, which is parked between, you know, the back of the venue and, and the river, which is normally where the band goes to pee during set breaks to avoid the uh, line at the bathroom door inside. So I'm peeing next to Rolo's truck and this girl comes outside and she goes, I have to pee. And she's talking to one of her, her friends or her boyfriends or something like that. She comes around the back of Rolo's truck and I'm standing there, hogged out, taking a leak. And she's like, oh. Oh, you're peeing too. And I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm peeing. Hold on. Let me go ahead and cut the stream off here. That was going really well and turn around. So you're not staring at my wiener the whole time. So I turn around and start peeing and she just, you know, proceeds to uh, cop a squat and do her thing on the back tire. So then Rolo comes out and he sees that there are two people now peeing next to his vehicle and presumably on his tire, which I did not. I did not pee on the tire. I can't speak for her. She may have peed on the tire. If she did, fantastic on the aim. That's nice work. But I was not peeing on the tire. So Rolo comes out and he's like, oh, everybody's peeing on my truck. Well, I guess I'll take this wheel. So as I wrap up and Rolo starts peeing, this girl walks around to the front of the truck and says, oh, you're peeing too, to Rolo, who is peeing next to or on his own vehicle. And proceeds, I, I said, yes, he's also peeing. This is his truck. Shake his hand. His name is Rolo. And while you're at it, shake his third hand. And she did. She uh, extended her hand and they, they shook hands while Rolo was peeing. They shook hands. So that was how the second pee break of the night went. And then we go to get back up on stage to uh, do the third set, the last set. All right, but right before the, the second set, people were chanting, one more song, one more song. It's like people, there's a whole other hour of music coming. Just just hold tight. The rest of us have to take a leak. So anyway, we get back up on stage for the third set and this, you know, somebody else comes up to me, of course, right after I put the in-ears in, so I can't hear anything. Some guy comes up to me and he goes, Man, you guys are legit. You guys are good. How much do you charge for a show? And I told him and he goes, Okay, okay, uh what do you charge for six hours? And after uh I cleaned the crap out of my pants I said, you're going to have to talk to somebody else about that. Six hours? The only thing I do for six consecutive hours or more is work, you know, as part of my living. No musician starting out or established is going to play a show for six hours. Six hours. You may as well just do a full day of work. You might as well be asking me to run on a treadmill for six hours. Six hours is nuts. 
no band is ever going to play six hours unless there's an hour break in between each set. If you want us to play six consecutive hours, only taking a few breaks, uh, then I'm going to say, you know, quadruple the estimate that we would normally give you for a typical three to four hour show. Six hours. Six? Like that, uh, for, that will forever blow my mind. Be insane. Anyway, despite the weirdness of last night, it was one of the easily one of the best crowds that I've ever had the pleasure of playing for. So if you were part of that, thank you for showing up. And thank you for enjoying yourselves, because when you enjoy yourselves, we enjoy ourselves. There's apparently a lot of enjoyment, because at the end of the night, we had a whole uh, Grandmaster Flash scenario on our hands. Broken glass everywhere. People pissing on the stairs. You know they just don't care. And not people pissing on the stairs, but apparently, you know, pissing on vehicles parked out back. Anyway, I think I, when I looked at the clock after the last chord was struck, it was um, 12.45 a.m. We played for four hours. It, and when the crowd is that crazy, you tend to up your game a little bit. And even as the youngest member of the band, I was exhausted. So I can only imagine how worn out the other guys in the band were. And it showed this morning. The folks at the dock, they were, they were kind enough to let us come back this morning and tear down the rest of our stuff. You know, lights and, and speakers and all that stuff. That usually takes about an hour hour and a half if we're working very diligently so i was kind of glad to pack my stuff up you know my my stuff pack it up and come home last night but not without stopping at hardy's first for uh an unnecessarily necessary double bacon cheese and some curly fries at 1 30 in the morning because when you're up there sweating and drinking beer you want a cheeseburger at 1 30 in the morning or at least that's how i justified i've worked to eat poorly so anyway, I you know go through the drive-thru at Hardee's, and the, the lady calls me hun, and it freaks me out, and she bothers me. And I get home, and I'm sitting on the couch. It's 1.45 in the morning, eating a burger and fries, kind of par for the course after I play a show. Anyway, a few minutes later, I look down at the clock, and it's 3 a.m. What? I just ate a cheeseburger and a freaking time warp. And then I remember it's uh, daylight savings time. So I've been dragging all day, and this week is going to be hard to readjust to, because yes, you gain an hour, but you also completely screw up your sleep schedule or so it seems so yeah i ate a cheeseburger and fries and a time warp last night it was bizarre so bizarre so we go back to the dock this morning at 11 30 to tear stuff down and as visible as it was last night that everybody was having a good time it was more visible and more smellable this morning when we returned to pack things up it would seem that uh, last night's crowd, or at least a handful of them, had a, a pretty hard time holding their liquor. I counted at least, at least, three puddles of dried puke. And most of these looked like disgusting pie filling, and they smelled like death. And I'm pretty sure the owners of said puke probably felt the same way, warmed over. So a great night last night overall, and, and I hope that's a sign of, of things to come throughout the summer. We've got a pretty busy summer coming up, and I hope all the crowds... Are that drunk and crazy? But anyway, the uh, the stench of sun dried yak didn't prevent me from uh, enjoying some lunch with my good buddy Sean McAvoy today. You guys may remember Sean as my guest on episode two of the Bocephus broadcast, alongside Ken Mother F and Bone. Sean was in town this weekend, and uh, we had ourselves some some brunch and some coffee at Village Inn, as sophisticated adults, college graduates do. Easy to lose track of time with that kid. I, I swear, I could record any conversation I have with Sean, and it would be enjoyable for just about any audience. And it would probably go on for two hours without becoming stale, especially when uh, Herman Cain is involved in the conversation. Super beats. That's just noise. That's noise. Nobody gets that. All right, that's fine. Anyway, 
good to catch up with Sean uh, this weekend. Great cap to the weekend for sure. Speaking of catching up, my guest today, the incredibly talented musician who plays what is known as percussive fingerstyle guitar. Get your mind out of the gutter. She is our first female guest and our first English guest, which is very exciting. Her name is Becky Langan. She appeared on the British talent show slash reality series Guitar Star, which is kind of like uh, your, your voice or your American Idol, but their mission is to seek out talented guitar players. And she made her way to the semifinals of the show. She got to record at the legendary Abbey Road. And she received praise from Tony Iommi, the freaking lead guitarist of Black Damn Sabbath. Needless to say, this gal has done some incredible work, and she's done incredibly well for herself. And I have to say thank you to my friend Dakota McKee for turning me on to Becky and her work. Dakota knows Becky personally and told me about her, and when I listened, I was immediately blown away. So I'm super grateful for Dakota for introducing me and, and being kind of the catalyst for scoring today's guest. So to give you an idea, to to describe what it is that Becky does, she is what I would essentially call a one-woman band, but she's doing it all with one instrument, and that is her guitar. So the percussion part of percussive fingerstyle comes from the way she uses the body of the guitar while she's playing to kind of simulate a, a drum beat or a percussion beat, something like that, something similar. Now, the fingerstyle part comes from the way she uses her fingers to play the strings. Lots of people use a pick, not not the you know not the pick you use to style your hair, but but to play guitar. Finger picking takes some very great skill, a lot of practice, a lot of intricate stuff going on with that. So anyway, she combines those two playing styles, and there you have percussive finger style. There's a lot more to it than that, and we'll dive into that. We'll dive more into Becky and her work. My interview with Becky Langer coming up uh, next on the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Stick around. The Bo Cephas Broadcast. <laughs> Hey friends, portions of this week's program are brought to you by John and Megan Stumpf, loyal listeners and supporters of the Bocephus broadcast. John and Megan recently relocated to beautiful Lakewood, Colorado from their native Quincy, Illinois, and they're experiencing a problem. They need house guests. If you're considering a vacation in the near future and you're friends with John and Megan, consider Lakewood, Colorado for your vacation destination. Let John and Megan put you up for the weekend and show you around the state where lead is Weagle. Thanks to John and Megan for sponsoring the Bocephus broadcast this week. And now, back to the show. We now return to the Bocephus broadcast. Our guest today is an incredibly talented guitarist from England. Her five-track EP, Parallel Paths, was released in December 2016. She was also a semi-finalist on Guitar Star, a television competition that searches the United Kingdom for a world-class guitarist. It's a pleasure to welcome my guest today, Becky Langan. Welcome. Hi. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. It's a pleasure to talk with you. You play what is known as percussive fingerstyle guitar, and I think that's really the most accurate description uh, of what is truly a, a very complex and intricate playing style. This is an all-encompassing talent. This requires like mastery of guitar. <laughs> I think, to be honest, I think um, I've just played a little bit too much guitar <laughs> um, you know, from from an early age, which naturally kind of um, developed into this style. So, how long have you been playing? 
Um, I started at 11 years old, um, so I'm 24 now. So I've been playing for 13 years. Gotcha. Um, but in terms of percussive finger style, um, I started playing when I was 14. Um, I, I was absolutely terrible at first, obviously. But, um, <laughs> perseverance, I suppose. I mentioned kind of um, understanding of guitar, but but tell me how an understanding of, of percussion also factors into this style of playing. It's quite strange, really, because um, I've never um, really, you know, picked up a drum kit or mm-hmm. anything uh, percussion-based. It was... Um, so when I was 14 years old, um, I was just browsing on YouTube um, and I came across um, Andy McKee, as, mm-hmm. as you know him. Yeah. And then I saw his uh, song called Drifting. Mm-hmm. And that was the first time that I'd ever seen, you know, anyone play the guitar like that. It made me realise just how incredible of an instrument the acoustic guitar was. Um, and from that age, I just I just started, you know, hitting my guitar. People were telling me, what, what are you doing? You, you're playing the guitar wrong. You're not supposed to do that. Um, <laughs> and I was like, no, I, I know what I want to sound like. Yeah. So I, I just kept going and going. Um yeah, and I, I, I ended up learning Drifting, actually. That was the first song I learned. Um, so I kind of put myself in the deep end a little bit. Yeah, that's, um, uh, that's a yeah. little insane. <laughs> <laughs> I, think, uh, I think you and I probably around the same age discovered Drifting on YouTube. Yeah, I think it was 2006. Somewhere was in that it? ballpark, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so, yeah. Obviously, you uh, you pursued playing guitar a little more seriously than I did. I can you know stick to the four chords and that kind of stuff. But was it overwhelming for you at times trying to learn what Andy McKee was doing and how he was doing it? Uh, def- yeah, definitely. Um, I was I was kind of aware that everything that I was doing was a little bit too advanced, you know, for my actual level of ability at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I kind of, I just kept studying, you know, uh, different musicians on YouTube. Like I never really had um, a teacher. So really, I'd, I'd say it was, you know, people that inspire me, such as Andy McKee, John Gorm, Thomas Leib. And they all inspired me to uh, play this style. And I, I like to think that I've, I've got to the point where I've kind of got my own sound now. Um, but, you know, I've taken a lot of inspiration from those three guitarists. Yeah, and I think I would have to agree with the fact that you you found your own sound, but there's still um, you, you can still definitely note those influences in oh, your music. Yeah. So, would you? I mean, how did you end up learning to do this? I know you know I've read that you've you've done some guitar workshops and things like that of, of the people that you admire. It, does it does it become a little simpler when you see it or hear it slowed down? Um. I think with with this style, because there's so much going on, um, timing is everything. Um, so I think that, you know, like when I tend to, you know, learn new songs or if I'm writing a composition, I always try to, you know, slow it down. Um, and I suppose, um, if anything, it kind of makes you realise how much is actually going on and how much you need to uh, work on, because that's when you notice little mistakes, you know, when you mm-hmm. tend to slow things down. But... And that's also the best way, I think, to, you know, actually kind of get a really solid piece together. Yeah. And I I can imagine that this is, I'm sure, an incredibly difficult thing to learn. So what kept you motivated when you found yourself frustrated with learning how to play this way? I think um, I just I just generally have always, you know, just really kind of 
enjoyed the guitar. I find it really kind of therapeutic. So the the frustration, um, if anything, kind of motivated me more. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, to try harder and just because I I love I love to challenge myself. Um, and I I just made sure that I was always you know challenging myself. I suppose so. Uh, you know, I could progress. Did you ever get to the point where you were like, I, I just want to quit. I want to hang it up. Um, I think so you know sometimes when you think oh uh, you know this sounds really cool what I'm playing at the moment and then you'll see I don't know John Gon post a new video and you're like oh I'm never going to be that good (laughs) (laughs) so in a way it kind of inspires you but also scares you away a little bit (laughs) yeah I could imagine yeah. that. So uh, now that you're kind of immersed in playing this way and that you're you're kind of a, a, accustomed to this playing style, do you ever find it difficult just to play like straight chords or simple stuff? Um, well, I'm I'm a guitar teacher. Um, so I, I, t- I actually take on quite a lot of, you know, beginner students as mm-hmm. well. Um, so I'm, I'm always kind of playing, you know, quite simple stuff as well. Um, and yeah, to, yeah to, I'm, I'm always sort of playing, you know, similar things, to be honest, like that. But I, I do, when I'm playing for the fun, you know, like on my own, I don't tend to, um, you know, playing standard tuning and chords. I always try and experiment a little bit more in open tunings. Have you, uh, have you ever been in a band? Um, no, I haven't. I've, I've always, um, I'm not sure if it was a matter of choice or whether it just naturally happened, but I've always just played on my own, um. And, and if you put me with another musician, you'll notice kind of that I do have quite a few weaknesses in terms of, you know, um, communicating with another musician. Um, like for example, my knowledge of theory, because I've never studied music, um, is actually, I, I don't really have, you know, huge knowledge of musical theory. So everything I do has always been by ear. Yeah, and I mean, I think honestly, you're you're in essence a one woman band, so you kind of you kind of take care of all the instrumentation. But have you ever? I mean, have you ever considered being in a band, or is that something that you want to pursue eventually? Um, recently, I've actually um, you know, been on the lookout for kind of you know, just like other musicians, just to kind of meet up with and jam with. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's it's kind of finding it's quite hard to find something that you know goes really well with my style um but recently i came across um well somebody got in contact with me on facebook um he's actually from quite nearby and he plays um you know the odd instrument i think that's how you pronounce it um so he, he was basically playing around you know over my compositions um and what he came up with was really really amazing it really inspired me so we we met up actually last week um so just as of now, I've started to create, you know, extra little side projects with musicians. Oh, that's cool. Uh, I want to I want to take a, a little bit to talk about some tech and some tone for the fellow guitar players that are listening. So the first question I want to ask is what string gauges or, or what string gauge do you use? Does it have to be a, a lighter gauge for you to play this way or what do you typically go with? Um, as of um, well, last year, I used to use um, gauge 12. But I started to experiment a little bit more with um, guitar strings. Um, I was always, you know, trying different brands. Um, and I noticed that um, John Gong plays Newton strings and he mm-hmm. plays uh, gauge 13s. But I think he has um, a 69 low E string. So, no, actually, sorry, he uses gauge 14 strings. Um, so gauge 14 seemed a little bit too, you know, 
a little bit too crazy for me. <laughs> so <laughs> yeah, I, I ordered some Newton strings, uh, gauge 12, but I ordered a 62 low E string. So mm -hmm. I have a, th a thicker, you know, low E string and it, it just adds more fullness, I suppose. Um, the tone of them strings are amazing. Um, so I now endorse them. Um, so I, I feel like I've finally found, you know, the strings that, that I just love. Um, I don't think I'll ever change, to be honest. You mentioned kind of that, that, that heavier low E string. Is that how you get such a full, rich bass sound? Like when you, when you hit that string or, um, you know, you're, you're playing cause it's, it's gotta be hard to get kind of a bass sound in that without that thick gauge. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, I think that definitely plays a huge part. And, um, I do use, um, a thumb pick as well. Um, I've only recently started to, you know, try it out without, so I think, you know, because I'm using a thumb pick um, and combined with that, I use, um, I have four acrylic nails. Um, so th they add, you know, a lot more kind of twang to the playing, if that makes sense. Um, I have a lot more control. Are you like a, a manicurist worst nightmare when you go in to get your nails done? <laughs> I actually get a discount because I'm only having four nails. It's great. <laughs> <laughs> so everybody wins. I know. <laughs> um, so you uh, you play a Taylor guitar, and I've got a, a two ten CE. And is you, do you play a two ten? Is that what one of your guitars is? It's um, a one one four. Gotcha. Okay. So so what model or you have more, do you have more than one guitar? I don't know. Um, I've always because um, I've met you know a lot of musicians, and they always tend to have like ten guitars, right. and they say oh, oh they all have you know different sounds, mm -hmm. but. I just love, I just love my guitar, um, like the tone, like everything about it. And I've become so accustomed to playing it that I don't know. I find it hard to find a guitar that compares to mine, if that makes sense. Yeah. I mean, it's got such a bright sound, but it's also so rich. And I think that's what I like about my Taylor. So, I mean, that makes sense that, that with your style of playing and that sound that, that that's the guitar you'd want to stick with. Yeah, and and also because um, it's very lightly varnished. Um, yes, that that's great, you know, for percussion. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, I don't usually like guitars with heavy varnish because that kind of ruins that nice percussive sound. Yeah, and I would imagine that that since you've got that one guitar, it's probably probably endured a lot of abuse over the years. So I mean, what's <laughs> what's the worst thing that's happened to to your guitar as a result of this playing? Um, I actually, um, it was, it happened when I was on Guitar Star actually, um, because it, you know, kind of above the string area where I kind of do the bass percussive sound because mm -hmm. I was hitting it all the time over and over again. Um, I got this like crack in my guitar and it started to extend and I was, I was like, Ooh. um, so I took it to <laughs> a guitar shop <laughs> to get it repaired. And the worst thing is, you know, having to leave because my, my guitar is like my child having to right. leave my child for two days <laughs> to get repaired with no other guitar to play it was awful so what i mean did they did you have to have a loner or could you continue the show without your guitar um well luckily it was kind of in between filming dates so i mean i i couldn't really practice for a couple of days but um yeah, it wasn't too bad. I, I got over it. <laughs> <laughs> um, are there are there time signatures to the stuff that you do, or does it just kind of flow freely as as you go forth and do your thing? Um, it's quite funny because uh, quite often my compositions are in 
you know, multiple um, time signatures. Um, and I, I don't actually, you know, realize that I'm doing it. Um, it's, it. It's just how they come out, usually with, you know, three to four different time signatures in one composition. Uh, I wanted to ask you, a lot of people don't understand instrumental music because there aren't any words, which I think is kind of ridiculous. But but in that regard, how do you speak using your guitar? Um, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, I, I, I feel like because um, each you know composition that I write um, kind of reflects you know my emotions at, at that particular time of writing the piece mm-hmm. so you know if if I'm feeling quite optimistic about life I'm generally quite happy then my compositions come out you know really kind of positive sounding and and quite often they do reflect my emotions which is quite interesting so you know if, if I'm feeling I don't know maybe a little bit down and I and I play my music is quite positive that I'm playing it wouldn't feel right um, mm-hmm. So quite often, yeah, my music does reflect my emotions quite strongly. Yeah, I think that I think that definitely comes through with with the stuff that I've heard that you've composed originally. Um, I want to talk a minute about Guitar Star. What is Guitar Star, and and how did you end up becoming involved and in, and in getting on the program? Um, so Guitar Star is um, a UK based competition, and they were basically you know trying to seek. Um, you know, guitarist that stands out, um, but you know, any style um, could could apply for the program. And at, at the time when I was applying, um, I just finished um, a master's in biology. Wow! So I know. Um, so that you know, that was my original plan. Um, mm-hmm. So I applied for guitar star, not really thinking, you know, anything would happen. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I. I basically went to London for an audition. I met the producers um, and I played one of my pieces, Aurora. um, And, you know, they seemed really impressed. And I found out that I got through to the top 21, um, which would be, you know, on episode one of Guitar Star. Mm -hmm. So I was, um, I was so, so happy. I I literally could not believe it. So that's basically, you know, how it all began. And I, I feel like Guitar Star kind of, put me um in the right direction to be honest i I, i'm not sure where i where i would be or what i would be doing if that didn't happen because it was kind of um an eye-opener for me and it kind of showed me um you know it, it put me in sort of the right mindset and it made me realize what i really wanted to do so i'm i'm very grateful for that yeah did you ever in your wildest expectations think that you would make it to the semifinals no, because <laughs> um, yeah, when when I watched, you know, um, the twenty one guitarists, they was insane, um, and yeah, it it, it was it was. I, I have no idea how they even you know decided on you know eight guitarists from that twenty one because everyone was so unique in their own way and so talented. Um, mm-hmm. So. In a way, I kind of felt a little bit guilty that I got through. But, I mean, I I had to, you know, just enjoy it um, as I did. So, yeah. Yeah, during your time on the show, you, you got the opportunity to record at the legendary Abbey Road. Tell me what that was like for you. Uh, that, that was amazing. Um, and it was, you know, it was in the actual studio where the, the Beatles recorded, you know, the actual piano. Uh, mm-hmm. what he played was a it was it was really 
amazing experience. And um, because that was actually before, you know, I released my um, parallel class, my EP. So that was the first studio that I ever recorded in was Abbey Road Studio, <laughs> which was quite surreal. Yeah, um, no kidding. You know, with Tony Visconti. Um, yeah, it's it was just so surreal. Um, but I, I loved every minute of it. Um, and, you know, all the contestants were amazing. Um, they were a really nice group of people. You got the opportunity to work with the legendary Tony Iommi. And for those for those of you who don't know who that is, he's the guitar player for Black Sabbath. Was it surreal for somebody of his caliber to call your playing, quote, mesmerizing? <laughs> that, that was quite, yeah, it was insane. But what's really funny is um, we had, um, so when I found out that I got, you know, through to the top five from the top eight, we literally had um, three days um, to get together um, a Black Sabbath or Tony Iommi track and we had to um, arrange it on the guitar. Um, so I, I'd never arranged anything on the mm-hmm. guitar. I, I was always, you know, I've always been a composer. Um, so it's quite funny because I decided on Children of the Grave, which is probably one of the most heaviest tracks. <laughs> but um yeah, I just really loved, um, I talked to, you know, like the percussion in the song, so um, I ended up playing that one. But when um, Tony described me as mesmerizing, he, he asked me to play um, one of my compositions. And I, I hadn't, you know, practiced it or played it in a few weeks. So I was like, oh no, I've been playing Children of the Grave for three days. <laughs> yeah, I, I felt like I, I'd, I'd forgotten everything else that I knew, which was quite funny. So, yeah, I was put on the spot a little bit. I had to just randomly play another song. But, um, but yeah, he said it was mesmerizing, so I, I, I think it went quite well. Yeah, I would say so. I'm sure you listen to, to other music aside from the style that you play. So what, what other kind of music do you enjoy? And um, does any of that music influence your own? And if so, how? Um, I have um, a very, very eclectic music taste. So... One of my all-time favorite artists is probably Ryan Adams, um, and I love I love Ben Howard. Um, anything you know that's kind of like ac- obviously acoustic based, but mm-hmm. I have a very um, I I used to be <laughs> a li- you know a little bit of a sort of like rock head to be honest. I, I was always <laughs> listening to rock music when I was younger. Um, yeah. So I suppose as I've got older, my music taste has calmed down a little bit. It's a little bit more relaxing. Um, but, you know, I, I, I'm always like looking for new, you know, sort of like music and just to find, you know, different inspirations. And um, I, I feel like my compositions are quite inspired by kind of, you know, like gaming soundtracks and mm-hmm. like film soundtracks. Um, yeah, literally everything inspires me to be honest <laughs> yeah i can hear that i can hear that yeah when you play live do you ever do you ever improvise or is it pretty cut and dry um it's really funny because i'm i'm like one of the most organized people ever you know some <laughs> people will wing it and um you know just be like oh yeah i'll play this whatever i feel i have like a like a set list of songs like with all the you know like my pedal board settings next to it. Um, mm-hmm. Everything is just like in order. And so, no, I don't really um, improvise unless I, you know, make a mistake 
I'm quite mm-hmm. good at improvising over that and hiding the fact that I've made a mistake. So that's kind of the only time that I really improvise when I'm playing live. You recorded and released your first EP, a five-song album titled Parallel Paths in December 2016. And this is all original music, right? Yeah, it's all original. Yeah. Where did you record this and how long did it take for you to, to make the album? Um, I recorded it at um, Blueprint Studio in Manchester. Um, the, the sound engineer was called uh, Tim Thomas. He was really, really good. My, my actual EP was, you know, only five tracks. But um, I've, I, I've probably written, you know, like an album worth of songs. Mm-hmm. But I basically just kind of chose, you know, my five strongest uh, tracks and decided mm-hmm. to, you know, release them. And um, I've, I've, I've always preferred to go over, um, you know, like quality over quantity. Um, so yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm already working on uh, my next album, but I, I think it'll probably take me maybe two to three years, I think, before my next one comes out. I remember watching an interview in which you said it takes you about six months to write an original piece. Is that right? Um, yeah, that, that's true. But I mean, it's, um, I, I'd say the past year, uh, because, you know, everything's been sort of happening for me music-wise, you know, with guitar style, um, I'm I'm more motivated than ever. So, you mm-hmm. know, when I, I was, like, studying and I had, like, other kind of, um, you know, responsibilities, um, <laughs> then it would probably take me, you know, like, up to six months to a year um, to write a song. And at the moment, I've I've just been pumping out songs like crazy it's great <laughs> I, I i don't know where they're coming from but <laughs> yeah now on, on average it's probably two to three months now that's a good problem to have is is having yeah. too much creativity in, in your <laughs> in your situation yeah um walk me walk me kind of through your creative process how do these pieces come to life um it always um you know just basically just just starts with me just you know, just playing, to be honest, and, you know, coming out with, um, like, ideas, and over time, these ideas, um, all, you know, they always do subtly change over time, and, you know, I create more layers, and the, the last pr- um, process is, is probably me actually, you know, kind of structuring the piece, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It's quite, yeah, quite often I'll, you know, I'll have parts, and then, I just know it doesn't feel right with where it's actually placed within the song, so I'll kind of change it around. And then, yeah, it's it, it can take, you know, like e- even a few months on top of that just to, you know, touch it up and polish it, just get the whole piece clean so I'm not, you know, making any mistakes. Um, and then performing that live is a different story, <laughs> you know, because you're under so much pressure. Uh, you right. have to kind of perform it live uh, quite a few times until you know, it's as good as it can be on stage. Mm-hmm. Do you kind of like that pressure of, of being under the gun and playing a song out live? Um, I used to, um, it, it wasn't that I disliked performing. It was, I, I was just, I was just so nervous, you know, to perform in front of people because I was yeah. always just sort of playing, you know, in my bedroom um, <laughs> as a kid. And But I, as I've, you know, p- performed more and more, um, and I'm becoming more confident. I can actually put more emotion and you know, like in, into my pieces because I'm I'm not like overthinking things. And um, 
you know, I, I feel like that kind of allows me to connect with the audience more when I'm actually feeling quite confident. Um, and yeah, it's it's definitely got better over time. Um, so now I, I absolutely love performing. Um, I, I wouldn't have said that a year ago. <laughs> <laughs> you, uh, you play a very physical style of guitar. So do you ever, are you ever like achy in, in weird ways or have you ever injured yourself as a result of playing this way? I do um, a lot of you know like hands hand stretches and finger stretches before i play and mm -hmm. after i play so i suppose that's a way of me uh preventing injury <laughs> um but it, it is quite funny like i do you know just find random bruises on <laughs> on my hands and <laughs> but i mean i i just find it quite funny to be honest it's just a daily problem for me <laughs> <laughs> Um, I want to I want to kind of keep talking about uh, Parallel Paths for a second. It, it was hard for me. And by the way, thank you for for sending me the record because it's it's fantastic. Um, thank you. It was hard for me to pick a, a favorite song, but I think two of the ones that I liked the most were Breeze um, and The Puzzle. And Breeze starts out kind of, you know, it's very easy and very calming in the beginning. And then it, in yeah. the middle, it kind of picks up. So what kind of story are you telling with that song? Breeze um, has got a huge story behind it, actually. Um, basically, um, when I was, you know, on Guitar Star, um, it was towards the end of the competition. Um, and when, when you're actually filming, um, you know, you, you're, you're performing um, possibly, you know, a few songs and and they'll they'll basically just take one song out of that and, you know, maybe mm -hmm. 20 seconds. Um, and you're spending all this time you know, actually preparing the piece. So towards the end of the competition, um, you know, um, I, I was kind of running out of things to play, particularly because I was so, you know, slow at composing. And um, so I basically set myself a challenge and I could either, you know, like learn a cover or um, set myself a challenge and write a composition. Um, by the way, I had uh, three to four weeks to do this. Um, so I decided to compose, um, and yeah, just Breeze just really, really uh, came together really quickly. Um, and I suppose it was the pressure that, you know, that kind of made that happen. Yeah. Um, but Breeze is basically, um, dedicated to, um, you know, just the whole experience in general, really. I kind of dedicated it to, you know, Guitar Star, um, helping me kind of find a direction in life and make me realize what I wanted to do. So mm -hmm. um, I call it Breeze because um, it essentially blew me in the right direction. Um, so that's what the meaning behind that song is. That's really cool. And um, I mentioned the puzzle and uh, this kind of this kind of answers one of my questions in a way, because earlier you said that um, you kind of relate your music to soundtrack and score and things like that. And when I heard the puzzle, I was like, this sounds like it belongs in a Western movie or like it could be like a, a long lost Johnny Cash track. So tell me about yeah. that song. Um, that's quite funny because um, I wrote uh, the puzzle in Missouri. Um, I, I was working at um, a summer camp um, and I was a guitar teacher and it was for underprivileged children. And there was um, a guy who worked at the camp and he was called Charles. Um, he was, you know, an incredible bass player. Um, so in the evenings um, after I'd finished um, a shift, uh, we basically just, you know, jammed for hours on end. Um, mm -hmm. And 
I mean, before I went to Missouri, the puzzle was kind of, you know, at early stages. So I'd, I'd say it developed when I was actually over there. Um, and I think I was really inspired by um, Charles, you know, as a musician. Um, he was actually, you know, the truck driver at the, at the camp. And that's just something he does for fun. But he, he was really, really good. Um, so I kind of just picked up, you know, inspiration from like Western music, music as well. And I've always loved the blues, you know, bluegrass, um, country music. Um, mm -hmm. So I think, yeah, I just kind of uh, picked up the inspiration from, you know, you know, what people were kind of listening to around me. Um, and yeah, and then eventually the puzzle came out. So That's a great song. Do you do you have a favorite song from Parallel Paths? Um, I know that's like asking it, it, you to pick yeah. a favorite child. <laughs> I know Actually, that's kind of a loaded question. Um, I I could tell you that the puzzle is probably my least favorite actually. Really? I think um yeah I I, I really really um like a lucid dream. They, they, this when I say like I mean um sort of enjoy performing. Mm -hmm. Um so I really like a lucid dream and fight or flight is um you know is kind of in a way like a crowd pleaser because I'm it's got so many techniques and it's a very fast-paced song mm -hmm. um so I have a lot of fun performing that live um you know usually I'll kind of like end a set with that song or maybe even you know start a set with that song to get people um you know kind of like noticing you a little bit more yeah you um you uh, said you've got another record kind of in the works. What does your schedule look like moving forward from here? Um, well, I've been um, I've been actually arranging um, running up that hill by Kate Bush. Um, that that's something that I've got going at the moment, and I've also almost you know just finished another composition. Um, so I'm I'm going to the studio in a few weeks to get um, running up that hill recorded, um, mm -hmm. and. Uh, I'm going to get it, you know, produced as well. Um, so I think I'm going to release that maybe as a single. Um, you know, I'm going to get like a music video for it as well. And wow. So I see right. how that goes. Does that make you nervous? Like, does it make you nervous being on camera? And I know that you, you kind of, you know, if you, if you search your name on YouTube, there's a lot of you being on camera. But does that ever make you nervous when other people, I guess, are, are filming you? um yeah yeah very yeah. very nervous um it's but i, I think uh, you know again with guitar star um, that's kind of helped me um because it was you know it was like one take um it was going on television in front of you know an iconic musician sure um, so you you was under you know like a lot of pressure on that program um so i i think that helped me a little bit in terms of, you know, being on camera and, you know, not overthinking things. I, I try and uh, just pretend that it's not there. I, I think that's the best way to do it because if you're, if you know, you know, that you're being filmed, you're not really going to be present, like when you're playing and your mind's going to wander off. So that's the best thing to do. Yeah. Well, uh, Becky, if, if people want to keep up to speed with you and kind of follow your career, how can they do so? What are the best ways to follow you? Um, I'm on Facebook, um, so that's Becky Langan Music on Facebook. Um, I'm on YouTube. Um, my username on YouTube is Becky eight six one zero, and I have a website which is www.beckylangan.com.
All right, there you go. Becky Langan, thank you so much for uh, shedding some light on a style of music that I, I've always been fascinated by. I, I appreciate you being my guest today and looking forward thank to hearing more from me. you in the future. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you so much <laughs> for, for being my guest today and hopefully yeah, we'll no maybe catch up with you when your next record comes out. Awesome. Thank you. You're listening to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Listen to Poop Culture on the Radio Misfits Podcast Network or at poopculture.com. We now return to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. That is it for episode nine of the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Thank you again to my guest this week, Becky Langan. Becky's album, Parallel Paths, is available for purchase right now. At her website, BeckyLangan.com. That's B-E-C-K-Y-L-A-N-G-A-N.com. You can also find her on Facebook at Facebook.com slash Music. Also want to say thank you to her for letting us use her music in this week's episode. If you like what you hear, buy the album. It's great stuff. Really enjoy listening to it. The game plan for episode 10 next week, if I can figure out how to do it and where to do it, is uh, going to be doing the show with my oldest friends, Lance, Patrick, who you know from the Valentine's Day episode. Uh, and Kyle. I believe I've mentioned all these gentlemen before, but yeah, the, the game plan uh, is to do this from the St. Patrick's Day Festival on March 18th. We're going to be doing Irish road bowling, and that's going to be out of control. So it'd make for a, a very entertaining program, I'm certain. So if I can get that to work, that's the plan for next week's show, episode 10. Later this month, there's going to be an episode devoted solely to WrestleMania which is taking place in Orlando on April 2nd. So you might get a bonus episode this month. I don't know. We'll see. Closing out the month, though, we're going to be talking with the internet legend himself, Ken M. A lot of you have been asking me to uh, get him on the show, and I'm happy to say that after some hunting, after some some tracking down, I got a hold of him. And the interview's in the books. All I got to do is put it into an episode. So look for my interview with Ken M. coming up later on this month. Speaking of episodes, don't forget to keep up with the latest episodes and check out previous ones by subscribing on Podbean or on iTunes. And if you're listening on iTunes, please, please be sure to take a few minutes and leave a review on the show. When you leave a rating or a review, that helps the show become more visible to new audiences. Plus, it's, it's good to read reviews of what I'm doing, even if they're bad reviews. So you can do that. So I ask that you please take a moment to uh, leave some feedback on the show if you're an iTunes subscriber and listener. Follow along on Facebook at facebook.com slash broadcast. You can also follow me on Twitter and Instagram at BoBCraft. Don't forget, if you want to advertise on the show, advertising rates start as low as $10. You want more information, contact me if you're interested in becoming a sponsor of the program. Thanks a lot for listening. It's uh, game over for now. Episode 9 in the books, but catch you back here next week for episode 10 of the BoCephas broadcast. Bye. been listening to the Bo Cephas Broadcast. Get the latest episodes and more on demand at bocephasbroadcast.podbeat.com. Bo